If you still have your Bible out, if you have the church Bible, find again Romans chapter 8 on page 550 in the small print Bible. (coughs) Romans chapter 8, we'll be looking at those verses that were read earlier, verses 1 through 4. We've had a bit of a technical issue. There is a visual, and I think it will come up. Just press the button. Right, uh, there, but there is another visual after this, which I have one more ditch effort I may attempt here in a little bit. Uh, if not, you're going to have to work your imaginations for it. Right, uh, Romans chapter 8. Uh, again, my name is KJ. Uh, I send greetings from Grace Church Burbridge, just a beautiful drive up the road. Um, I, I, a church that very much is behind you, praying for you, uh, loves the fellowship that we have among our FIEC churches in our, our cluster around, is it the A59? Is that our, our A59 corridor? That's us. Uh, and we're praying there might be many more in the days to come, uh, many more churches to join our, our fellowship, our network. Um, let me begin this morning by sharing with you a definition of preaching that I found helpful. If you're new to church and what's going on right now in this moment, this may help you. Uh, preaching is the word of God conveyed through personality. Very simple. The word of God conveyed through personality. And that definition stretches farther than just what's happening right now because that goes to you as well. As you're out and about in everyday life, as you're speaking with people, what are you doing? It's the word of God. The reward of Christ richly indwelling us, the gospel being conveyed through our personalities to others. And that's that's good. It's good news because in one sense, it's the way it must be. It's not as though any of us can flip a switch and turn off our personalities in order to speak God's word to people. We must all be who we are, right? We must all be who we are. Otherwise, we'd come off as imitators, as fake and put people off. We must all be who we are as we speak God's word to one another. Now, one aspect of who we are, one aspect of personality that helps us convey the truth of God's word is the imagination. A a truth that captures our imagination has found rich soil and room to grow. It has a greater sticking power than anything else. It's like you have a you have a, a, a peg. Now you can hang the hat of the truth upon Uh, When you think about it, we are really reflecting God when we use our imagination to convey truth. Because God is the, the being of infinite imagination. Everything you see around you is the product of his mind, of his imagination spoken into being. God is the great storyteller who speaks and what he speaks actually comes about. Right. That's that's us. That's the world around you. And because God is a great storyteller, we are also storytellers. Why? Because we have the Imago Dei stamped upon us, the image of God. We we reflect his image, his mark upon us. And this is part of it, the imagination. So kids, uh, when kids uh, make up stories and populate imaginary worlds with with people and, and animals and whatnot, you're doing, they're doing Something that says we've been made in the image of our creator. We've been made in the image of God. We are little image bearers, marred, right? Flawed, uh, though that image be fallen. We all need to realize, as J.R.R. Tolkien did, 
that the best products of human imagination are but sub-creations. Only, there's only one creator who creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. We all create from within what he has made. Uh, and uh, we are little sub-creators. We do that best when what our imaginations create reflects his truth. Okay, and that's what I'm going to try to do this morning. With, with a theology of imagination in mind, let's look at Romans and try to visualize its truth in a way that I hope will capture our imaginations this morning and make it stick with us. So our, our points of focus in Romans will just be chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. But first, let me give you a brief summary of the message of Romans thus far. And you can picture it like a mountain. And this is the visual that did make it. Here's the mountain. Okay, Mount Romans. Uh, think of the first seven chapters of Romans like a mountain whose peak is chapter 3, verse 21. And we'll see how that all works out. Um, uh, think of us as, as those on a journey. We're on a journey this morning. And first we got a mountain to climb. And it's the first seven chapters of Romans. And along this mountain, there are sightseeing points. They've all been marked out for us along the way. One, two, three, four, five, all the way down to seven. Okay, and each point has a truth to tell us. So as, as we journey up uh, Romans chapter 1, this is what we learn in Romans 1, that sin leads to wrath. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all those who suppress the truth about him in unrighteousness. And that's what we've all done, all of us. Sin leads to wrath. Uh, we go up to the second mark, chapter 2. What is, what's the message there? Sin leads to wrath, and that's for Jews and Gentiles. Paul says, you, you who condemn others, you do the very same thing. You Jews, you do the very same thing. All of us are under sin. Why? Chapter 3, because there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who seek for God. All of us have fallen short Together, All have, have, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as we're climbing, boy, it's a tough climb, the first three chapters. And just as we reach the point of despair, we get the good news. Chapter 3, verse 21. But now a new kind of righteousness has appeared. It's not the kind of righteousness that comes through works, through building up a righteousness of our own. It's a righteousness that comes by faith. Faith in the works of another. Faith in the performance of another. So we see that, uh, uh, that reaching this point of despair, all of sin, we're all under wrath. There's none righteous, but now a new kind of righteousness come. It's the righteousness that Christ has earned and he gives to you on the basis of faith. But lest we think we're out on a limb by ourselves in this, we go into chapter 4. Going down the hill now, uh, we discover that a new righteousness comes by faith. And this is the kind that Abraham had all along. Right? The, the father of the Jewish nation, this is how he became right with God. Not by what he did, but by believing God. And Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Right? Chapter 4, Romans chapter 4. Chapter 5, this is the kind of righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus. So clear, chapter 5, verse 1. Now we have peace with God. Why? How? It's through faith in Jesus Christ. While you were his enemies, verse 10 of chapter 5. While you were his enemies, he gave his son for you, right? Uh, so he made us his friends through giving us his son and his son's righteousness. Chapter 6, this ends the reign of sin over us. It sets us free, but, chapter 7, nothing can change this. Nothing can change the nature of sin. 
but it's, it ends the reign of sin over us, but chapter 7, uh, but not the presence of sin in us. Okay, so we've made it over the mountain of the first seven chapters of Romans. And if you give me one minute, I will see if this has worked. Let's see. Unless there's somebody more, more savvy than me. Um, let's, let's try this. I, I, might just, I might just see if the PDF will come up. Let's see. What's this? Uh, wait. Wait for it. Something about Trump? Okay. <laughs> of course, it always is. <laughs> Uh, yes, there it is. Okay, how do you get full screen here? Oh, F11. Is there a second here? Wait, wait, let me try this real quick. Um, let's do... <laughs> Shout it out if you see it. <laughs> wait, I just want to get, I want to get hit. Wait a second. Uh, wait, wait, there it is. I see it. Nope, nope. Wait, no, this, this, this one. Wait. No, 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 Oh, I had it? Yeah. Oh, okay. There it is. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Here it is. Now we've reached it. We've gone over the mountain and we've come down into the valley of Romans 7. Okay, the valley of Romans 7, the valley of unexpected pitfalls and bramble snares. There are neck high nettles. In this valley uh, that continually prick and irritate us. We lash out in frustration and only get pricked all the more. We try so very hard to be good, walking circumspectly. But the harder we try, the more frustrated we feel by all the pricks and splinters and pits we fall into. We feel the truth of C.S. Lewis's words that no man can really know how bad he is until he's tried so very hard to be good. Do you know that? No one knows really how bad they are until they try so very hard to be good. Uh, it's, it's like we've lived life thus far in a lazy river. You've ever been in a lazy river? You get into um, a float and you just go down it. You think, oh, this is, this is so easy. The current's so slow. But then you try to swim against it and you discover, oh, no, the current's really strong. Right, uh, And that's the way life has been. It's, we, we've just gone with the flow, but then when we try so very hard to be good, we realize how, how bad, how, how crooked, how broken we are. Uh, the byword of this valley is, I do the very thing I hate. Romans 7. I do the very thing I hate. Part of the struggle is that there's been a change in our hearts. Our hearts testify that God's will is good. The law of God is good. But we find a different law at work, Paul says, in our hearts, that, that sin is there. Sin is still present. We're always shaking our heads. How could I fall into that again? How could I fly off the handle again? How could I let that happen again? I think every Christian's been there. And we've all lived in this valley. And you might be thinking, yes, uh, better than anything else, that describes where I am right now. How I came into this room this morning. Just ask yourself, what is the best possible news that could come to those wandering around in the Valley of Romans 7? What's the best possible news? What do you need to hear most? What do you most need to know is true? It's exactly what the Word of God actually says to you 
Romans 8, verse 1. This is what you need to hear. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. Let that sentence fall with all the relief and assurance it's meant to give. There is therefore now no condemnation. Romans 7 wonders. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Along the edge of this valley, Paul, the unlikely sign painter, has left loads of signs for us to see. And they all say the same thing. 8-1. No condemnation. No condemnation. It's big, bold print. Uh, But there are some wanderers in this valley who don't bother to read the signs. Or else they read them and they don't believe it. And they try to escape from the valley by wandering out into the bog of condemnation. There you see it in the middle. The bog of condemnation. Uh, the more you struggle to exert yourself in this bog, the quicker and deeper you sink. It's like a marshy quicksand. Uh, it's, it's like the dead marshes. And there's no, there's no hobbits to lead you across. Uh, you just you sink in it. But every so often, uh, a Roman seven wanderer thinks, I can cross this bog on the bridge of man-made rules. Yes, that's the way to escape doing the things I hate and avoid drowning in feelings of condemnation. I'll live by some well-chosen rules. I'll set limits on what I can do. I can only associate with these people. I'll only allow myself this much food or leisure. I'll I'll rigidly keep these rules uh, in parenting my children. I'll follow the seven-step program. I'll do these religious activities, and all will be well. Paul tells us, though, that there are many things that have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and the severe abasement and treatment of the body, but they are of no value against the flesh. Right? Have you, have you, do you know that experientially be true? They're of no value against sin. Man-made rules may change some behaviors, but they cannot change the heart of the issue. They cannot change our hearts, right? From which Jesus says, this is where everything flows. Someone goes into the body, but what comes out of the heart that corrupts the man. So rather than making stepping stones through the bog, our man-made rules become stones that we carry on our backs, right? As we try to cross the bog, we carry these rules on our backs and we begin to sink under them. Begin to seek, sink under the weight of rules and expectations not demanded by the gospel. Perhaps it's the ideal weight that continues to elude you, makes you feel defeated. Maybe it's the place of acceptance you want with your peers at work or kids that you want, uh, on the playground, right? We, we, we can, uh, we can sink under self-made rules and even nice looking religious ones. Really, half the world is sinking under religious rules. Uh, uh, You need to pray this much. You need to give this much. You need to make this pilgrimage. You need to do these works. There are only two possible outcomes if we choose to live this way. Either we sink under the burden of guilt and shame in this bog. Or if we do well, we replace those burdens with something bigger. And you know what it is? You've got a set of rules. You feel like you're keeping them well. What grows even bigger? It's pride, isn't it? We sink under pride. And which of those do you think is is farther from God? 
Remember, Jesus came and he said, it's, it's these Pharisees who are putting these burdens on their backs and on the backs of others and thinking that they're the best rule keepers around. They're farther away from God than the tax collectors and the, the prostitutes. So ask yourself this question. Have you ever tried to escape doing what you hate through self-made rules? How'd you get on? How long did you keep it up? Did you sink under guilt? Or if you thought you were doing well, were you inflated with pride? There's another way you can try to cross the, this bog. Uh, there's another bridge to try. And it's not the bridge of self-made rules, but it's the bridge of the law of God. A key difference between the law of God and the rules of man is the law of God is graciously given. Right? Romans affirms this. The law is good. It's grace. It's like gold. David says the law is like precious gold to me. But if we start carrying gold bricks across the bog on our backs, what's the end result going to be? It's going to be exactly the same, isn't it? We're going to sink under it. Uh, and perhaps that's the image some of you need most this morning. Bricks of gold carried on your back through the bog is going to result in the same thing. You see the bridge at the top is, is gold bricks across. But we're, we're, going to, we're going to sink under that as well. Because um, I think that's where, that's where some of you may be. It's certainly where some or many children brought up in Christian homes are. Right? What are we going to do? When you see someone, when you see your child struggling under the golden weight of the law. They, they know God's word. They know God's law. They struggle to keep it. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? What should you do? Here's what you should do. You point them to the bridge made by the great bridge builder. That's what we see. Romans 1. Uh, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is real. Condemnation is real. We feel that. But freedom from it is also real. Freedom was not going to come through carrying the law on your own back. Someone had to do that for you. And by his perfect obedience, transform golden burdens into a priceless bridge. Jesus built a bridge through his perfect obedience. So we see verse 3. Look at verse 3. It says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Through our sin, the law was condemning us. But Paul says now, through offering himself, Jesus has condemned sin. He's turned the tables. He's made an impassable bog into a golden highway. Notice in verses 1 and 2 that this freedom from condemnation comes in and through Christ. In and through Christ, but it is applied by the Spirit. Do you see that? It's the Spirit of life who applies this to us. And I really racked my brain for a good way to visualize the Spirit in the, the picture before us. Uh, I thought of some kind of aid that carries us across 
the bridge, uh, like a trolley or something. But then I thought, no, we, we don't want to picture the spirit as a thing, as a force, as an it. Because the spirit is a he. The spirit is a person. Right? Uh, so picture this. As we stand, this is all of us together. As we stand on the edge of this bog, fully taking in the signs for the first time, there's no condemnation for you. We meet a person. Over our shoulder, we hear a voice right at our ear. I know you feel condemned in this valley, but truly I tell you, there is now no condemnation for you. For I have applied the work of Jesus to your soul and set you free. We turn and there with us is a person unlike any we've ever seen. He is all action and joy and laughter. The very one you want to be your comforter. The very one you want to be your help. You know instantly that if you were to pick a mate uh, to fight along your side in battle, this would be the person you would most want. And he says to us, I see you have in your hands and laid upon your heart the gold bricks of the law. Here, let me help you bear them across the bridge. And all of a sudden we realize that what was burdensome, felt burdensome to us before, is not burdensome at all. It's light, it's treasure graciously given to us. And as we walk across the golden bridge, our helper applies to our hearts the story of its builder. He says this, You know, this bridge came at a great cost. The master builder, the architect of all, the son of the Most High came down. He descended into this bog. And brick by golden brick, he built this bridge through his perfect obedience. The whole time being opposed by a monstrous serpent. Ah, you see it there, the serpent. The whole time being opposed by a serpent, that dragon of old. And as he laid the final brick in place, he dealt that dragon a mortal wound. And then he gave up his life to death and sank beneath this bog. All creation should shudder at the thought of it. And the wounded serpent thought he had won. But the bridge builder had the authority of his father, the power of indestructible life, and he had me, the Spirit said. Up from the bog of condemnation, he rose victorious to the surprising joy of his friends and to the confounding despair of his enemies. After returning to the halls of his father to prepare a place for all who travel here, he sent me. I delight to make much of him and apply the work that he's done. But what about the serpent, Steve asked? What about the serpent? The master maker, the bridge builder, dealt him a mortal wound to his head. It's inevitable that he will meet his end, but he's still dangerous. He's a dragon after all. He prowls about this bog seeking someone to devour. Those who do not heed the signs and trust to other bridges are most in danger. Then someone else asks, Why did the gold bricks of the law feel so burdensome in the bog, but so light now that we're on the bridge? The law is good, the Spirit says. But disconnected from the builder... Your heart rebels against it. 
You cannot keep the law of loving your enemies if you disconnect it from the builder's love for you while you were his enemy. Only when you connect the law of God with the work of Christ is the burden transformed into something you naturally want to carry. And I help you with this, the Spirit says. So we're approaching now the the end of the bridge and we kind of falter in our step because we see there at the other end a giant toll booth standing there. But the Spirit says, fear not. Your toll has been paid in full. Look again, chapter 8, verse 3. It says, uh, What's, what the law couldn't do, God did, Christ did, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Right, what's, what's required in this toll booth? Perfect righteousness. The righteous requirement of the law is perfect obedience. But you see, you see the scales. And oh, oh, it's too small probably to see. There's a cross in the scales. Right, the cross of the maker completely fills the scales. All your righteous requirement is paid by Jesus. The blood of the builder also refines the gold that you carry. Your, your obedience to the law of God. Uh, you don't have to pay with the gold bricks that you brought with you, that you've, what you've achieved, but you get to keep everything. And it's washed and purified by the blood of the maker. So as we make our way through the rooms of righteous requirements, we then come into an armory. The Spirit says, arm yourselves. Beyond that door is the battle plain. But fear not. I will train your arms for battle. I will apply the word that cuts away the traps that have entangled you. I will grieve with you at your every injury and fall. But I will never abandon you. Nor will I let any enemy rob you of your treasure. I will radio in your every need to central command because I have the ear as well as the heart and mind of the high king. I know his plans for every engagement and I know his plans for you. Do not be afraid. Even should your flesh give out upon this field, everyone who dies fighting upon this battlefield dies victorious. And I will carry them to the hall of heroes in the presence of the king. So be strong and courageous. Act like sons of the Most High. Because that is who you are. Welcome to the fight. And with that, the doors open. And we step out on the battle plane of Romans 8, 5 through 13. Which is another message. Okay. Uh, so that's how I visualize Romans 8, 1 through 4. And I imagine you've already done this. You've probably picked up on most applications as we've made our way through the story. But let me make four explicit applications as we end. Application number one. When you're wandering in the valley of Romans 7, read the signs. Read the signs. It's so easy. It's so easy to be like a pig who just wants to wallow in the mud when we're there in our sin, right? Right? 
I just want to wallow in sin and grief and self-pity and self-loathing. But the signs point the way to freedom and to joy. Be quick to see it. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Be quick to respond when others point you to it. They see you struggling in sin and point you to Christ. Be quick to see the sign and respond. Respond. Be quick to point others struggling to the sign. Tell your soul, tell your spouse you're in the valley. But isn't there a sign somewhere? Isn't there a sign somewhere here? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Tell your children you're in the valley of trouble now and again. You're there again. But what sign points the way to hope? Right? What sign points the way to hope? Uh, there's uh, Our church uh, is part of a, a group of, of churches called Acts 29. It's a church planning organization. And the guy who's the head of that for Europe is the guy named Philip Moore. He's Northern Irish, so he calls his name Philip Murr. Philip Murr, he said this uh, about a sermon. He says, perhaps the best answer to the question, how is the sermon, is always, we shall see. We shall see. So if I've given you just one way to speak truth to someone else, I'll consider this sermon well worth it. When you're struggling, when someone else is struggling, ask them, what sign? Shouldn't there be a sign here somewhere? What sign should you be looking for? And it's a gospel sign. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's application number one. Number two, don't trust other bridges to deliver you from this valley. Man-made rules are like stones. You will sink under them. Or else you'll sink under them or you'll pile up pride if you think you're doing well. God's law is precious. It's like gold bricks. But you will also sink under the weight of them if you try to bear them on your back apart from Christ. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. When you find yourself sinking in feelings of condemnation, ask yourself, what am I doing? What am I doing? Am I trying to bear gold bricks through the bog on my back? Is that what I'm doing? I can't do it. I I own it. I can't. But I know the one who can. And I know the one who has done it perfectly for me. When you see your friend being crushed under gospel lists, expectations and standards, you can say to them, why don't you cast those off? Cast off those stones into the bog. Let's remember the bridge Jesus built for us and stop trying to be our own saviors. That's what we're doing. We're trying to be our own saviors. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were trying to be their own saviors. Paul said, I was the best at it as well. No one could accuse me of any fault in keeping the law. But all these things I thought were going to recommend me to God, all my law keeping, all my attempts to keep God's law, I find are actually not in my game column, but they're in my loss column. They were what was keeping me from true righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Application number three. Look to the Spirit to transform burdens into blessings by applying the gospel. I'll say that one more time. Look to the Spirit to transform burdens into blessings by applying the gospel. How does the golden law go from a soul-crushing burden to an everlasting blessing that's not even burdensome at all? The answer is... 
when the Spirit connects it with the work of Christ. When the Spirit connects the law with the work of Christ. Only when we stand upon the perfect bridge of Christ's righteousness can we truly carry out the law. Only when the Spirit convinces my heart that I've been freely forgiven do I have the power then to forgive others freely from the heart. Only when the Spirit convinces my heart that I've been accepted unconditionally by Christ can I go out then and accept others. Accept those as you've been accepted. Only when I believe God loved me unconditionally can I go out and love my neighbor. Right? Love them unconditionally. Uh, only when the Spirit teaches my heart that, uh, that God loved me while I was his enemy can I do the impossible. The law says love your enemy. Right? Love your enemy. But I cannot muster that up in myself. Until my heart believes the gospel that God loved me while I was his enemy. When my heart's won by that, I believe that's how God relates to me. Then I can relate the same way to others. And I'm doing it in a way that glorifies God, not my willpower. Because it's what he's done for me. It's his gospel. right? It's what Christ has done that enables me to keep his word. To keep his law. Does that make sense? That, that is so huge. It's so big. Because we can try to keep the law in our own strength, in our own might, and we can fail <laughs> miserably at it. But as we look to Christ, as we believe the gospel, our hearts are changed. Uh, you, give my, you give me a list of rules, and I can try really hard, but it's not going to change my heart. It might change my behavior somewhat, it's not going to change my heart. But give someone the gospel, and it changes us from the inside, doesn't it? It changes our hearts, it changes what we desire to do. When you find any command especially burdensome, ask yourself, how has my heart failed to connect this with the work of Christ? We've, we've missed the dots, connecting the dots somehow. How has my heart failed to connect this with the work of Christ? If you're trying to be a superman and bear it disconnected from Jesus, you can do nothing. But connected to him, the impossible will start to happen in our hearts. We'll begin to love our enemies. We'll begin to rejoice in our suffering. So, so big application. Connect the commands with Christ. Connect the commands with Christ. Last application and we're done. Know that you can only successfully fight sin from the standpoint of being righteous, forgiven, and uncondemned. Know that you can only successfully fight sin from the standpoint of being righteous, forgiven, and uncondemned. You can fight sin with law and rule and self-improvement programs, but if you were to succeed in killing off any sin, it would be replaced by something else very quickly. It would be replaced by pride and self-righteousness. That's what Paul found as when he was Saul before he met Jesus. It's exactly what he found. All his successful rule-keeping only built up his pride. That's, that's our default way of fighting sin, isn't it? Killing one sin with another. I saw a, a billboard once. Uh, uh, it was one of those anti-drug billboards that said, it had a picture of someone's face just really, really uh, mauled and messed up. And, the, and it, was, it was against meth. And the billboard said, I used to be pretty. I used to be pretty. What, what is that appealing to? What's the appeal? Get off addiction... To a substance, why? 
because it's appealing to someone's vanity. I used to be pretty. We fight one sin by elevating another sin. And we do that. That's the way the world fights sins. That's our default way of fighting it. And many times we, we we don't want to be greedy or proud. Right? So we, we elevate other sins to combat them. But when your righteous requirement is fulfilled by a perfect righteousness that's not your own, then you won't be self-righteous or prideful in your fight against sin because that would just be inconsistent. It wouldn't make sense. It's all the work someone else has done. What's there to be self-righteous about if I believe I haven't contributed anything to my righteousness? It's all Jesus. Right? It's all him. So you now have the motivation to get back up after you fall and charge back into battle because the battle does not turn on your performance, but has already been won by the performance of another. So ask your soul, how am I arming myself for the fight? Is it with confidence in myself and my own performance or is it with faith in Jesus performance and the Holy Spirit applying it to me? Finally, let's remember who it is who calls us and loves us. The master bridge builder, the courageous serpent crusher, the servant king who fights for us and the spotless lamb who is our righteousness. Because he died sinking under your unrighteousness and was raised for your salvation. Hear these words now and believe them. There is therefore now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. Believe that. Let's give him thanks. Father, we thank you for this word. And I pray that it might find rich and fertile soil in every heart here. Um, Lord, may we not forget ever uh, in our, on our best days, on the darkest days, Uh, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, Lord, at times when we feel ourselves wandering around in the valley of Romans 7, may we be quick to see the sign, quick to, to look to the bridge that Christ's performance has accomplished what we could not. May we, uh, uh, just rest today and every day in complete, perfect righteousness given to us as a free gift. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. Uh, May that fall rich upon our souls. And may every heart believe, uh, perhaps for the first time, believe today in Christ as their king, as their righteousness, as their all in all. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.